HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network, and today's show is being sponsored by Acme Smoked Fish, North America's leading producer of smoked seafood. Sourcing only the highest quality materials from around the globe, Acme has been a sustainable steward of the seafood industry for over 55 years. From traditional smoked salmon to fine delicacies like smoked sable and trout, Acme is the authority on smoked fish. For more on the Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay brands, visit acmesmokedfish.com. Well, here we are just a couple of weeks away uh, from Thanksgiving. If you're listening live on Thursday, we're only a couple of weeks away from Thanksgiving, and I felt it appropriate to to talk a little bit about the holiday and um, and where it came from and some of the historic recipes that are attached to it. Um, according to uh, to history, <laughs> a letter that was discovered um, oh in the early 1800s by an Alexander Young, uh, it was a letter written by Edward Winslow. And according to that letter, in 1621, the Plymouth colonists and Wampanoag Indians shared an autumn harvest feast that now we acknowledge today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations of the colonies. However... That letter was not discovered until 200 years after the feast occurred. But the the festivals and the celebrations continued. In fact, by the end of the 17th century, days of Thanksgiving had begun their evolution from austere religious church-based holidays that focused on family and food, as they do today, but they, they really were um, more holy days. And in the New England colonies, it became usual to proclaim a day of Thanksgiving in the autumn, in addition to other Thanksgiving days that were called for in the course of the year. The harvest celebration with the Wapanoag Indians in the fall of 1621, as far as we know, was totally forgotten and played no part in the Thanksgiving of the 17th and 18th centuries, because there's not a single reference to it in, um, in earlier celebrations, until that letter by Winslow, which was discovered by Alexander Young. And as I said, the early colonial Thanksgivings were sporadic and, and very solemn, and they um, they were religious and civil observances. 
according to a book by Sandy Oliver and Kathleen Curtin, a wonderful book called Giving Thanks, Thanksgiving Recipes and History from Pilgrims to Pumpkin Pie. Um, they write quite a bit about the beginnings of, of um, Thanksgiving from their work on the Plymouth Plantation. And these celebrations were really... Uh, that came in between the morning and afternoon afternoon church services. I mean, they weren't large meals. They didn't have time for a large meal, so they were really quick bites. But over the 1700s, the Thanksgiving observances evolved into a single autumn New England holiday that really centered around the family. And the church services were limited to one a day so that it gave more time to prepare a large meal. And... Lo and behold, we um, enter the 1800s, and an author and editor who is responsible for Thanksgiving as we know it is Sarah Josepha Hale, and she wrote a book called Northwood. She was a writer uh, and uh, by by trade and by craft, and and made her living from it. And this novel, Northwood. She was for Thanksgiving what Charles Dickens was for our Christmas. She she wrote about the celebration about the table and and the family and the foods that would were served a lot of it fictional and a lot of it drawing upon thanksgiving celebrations from the years past still thanksgiving was not a recognized holiday and it wasn't until really efforts by her lobbying that in um 18 what was it 1863 help me out sarah she lobbied Abraham Lincoln. And remember, this was during the Civil War time, so times were lean. And she lobbied President Lincoln to recognize Thanksgiving as an American holiday and an official national holiday in November. That at a time, I think, very important to help bring the country together as well. And um, the pilgrims, pilgrims and Pilgrims and Pumpkin Pie. Interesting because neither Pilgrims nor Pumpkin Pie played much of a part in the initial celebrations, but of course later on they certainly did. And to even tell us more about some of those recipes and Josepha, um, Sarah Josepha Hale, I have a very interesting guest today. My guest today is Sarah Lohman. And Sarah is an artist who lives here in New York City in, in Long Island, Queens. And she is, to quote uh, an, an author from um, the Culinate, Sarah is a rare breed of hobbyist, a historic gastronomist. She rediscovers and recreates American recipes that went out of style hundreds of years ago. For her, it is the closest thing to time travel, reawakening her senses and opening doors to old flavors and ideas that once had been pop culture. Pop culture, Sarah? <laughs> Welcome. It's so nice to have you It is you here. so nice to be here. Pop culture. Well, if pop, pop culture could be called so from <laughs> the 1600s. I don't know. But. Well, it's true. And I think that that's the approach that I like to take to history. Because um, at one time, these flavors were popular. There were fashions in flavor. There were fashions in how to set your table. And I like applying that uh, to the modern day as well. Not just recreating the recipes, but reviving them and making them a part of what I'm cooking in my kitchen too, bringing back in the fashion. That's well, that's very interesting. Now you, um, you have done open, a lot of open hearth 
cooking, and you do work in Brooklyn at a at a stone house. Yes, I I have done events at the old stone house in Brooklyn. Which Tell us is, a little bit about that about the old stone house. Certainly, they are a recreated house um, of a homestead that was involved in the Battle of Brooklyn, and I really like working with them not only because they are wonderful people, but because there is a tremendous advantage to working in a recreated space. You're not worried about ruining anything. Mm-hmm. And so that is always a concern when you're bringing food into a historic environment. So they are very much about engaging the community. They're right in Park Slope in uh, the middle of a beautiful park. And uh, last year, I was I did a video with a woman named Liza de Gia, Doi, excuse me, Goya, who is a the producer of Food Curated. Food, food Curated. That's great, the one. Great videos. Absolutely. And videos. as a matter of fact, the video I did with her is going to be playing tonight on uh, Channel 25, I believe. Yeah, she's, gotten, she's mm-hmm. gotten her gig on TV now, which she is has. really wonderful. It yeah. is really wonderful. Less than a year she was doing those videos. It was nominated for a James Beard. So that mm-hmm. is a fantastic um, thing that she's doing. So she found me through something else as these things happened last year. And um, that was around the same time that I was doing really my first event with Old Stone House that I was doing. Wow. So the owner of Old Stone House had kind of picked up on that video. Um, and I said that one of the things I really wish I could find in New York City was uh, an open hearth because you can find everything in these boroughs <laughs> except for something like that. Right. And uh, then I get this email that's like, hey, we have an open hearth <laughs> here in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, you know, it's crazy. And it had been years since I'd cooked on an open hearth. And I actually didn't, when I'd done period accurate cooking, I had done it on a wood stove. So um, I had little experience when I began down there. But um, the first thing I wanted to do was thanksgiving dinner it just seemed to make sense absolutely um and it worked and everything was cooked and we had about 150 people show up that day they, wow that's a lot to do when you're not really sure oh of your, yes of I, your surroundings I, and yourself i went in i did a test run but you know what if, for me i really like doing this work sometimes because um in some ways fire is simpler you know if it's if it's hot it's hot it's cold it's cold it's sometimes working with an oven there's a certain mysteriousness about food you put something in and well we'll see if it comes out an hour later mm-hmm. when you're working with the fire it's much more visceral you just have a better understanding of when something is done when something should be done whether it needs to be hotter or colder for me that's easier maybe that sounds crazy right and you could use an oven thermometer yes but they didn't use them when when they you know were cooking with open hearts they did not use them they just knew they knew how many logs they knew how hot it was right and the most common question i would get is how do you know when it's done and i still don't know how to answer that question how do i know if it's done you you look at it. <laughs> you, uh, you know, it's it. interesting. That is still, I think, one of the most common questions mm-hmm. that non-cooks always ask cooks mm-hmm. in traditional, in, in ovens that we use today. Mm-hmm. How do you know when it's done? You know, and there's a, the whole thing about pressing meat and pressing cakes. And it just it's just practice. You just sort of get a sense of, you know. It's just done. But then something will surprise you. You'll take that perfect cake out of the oven and the whole thing collapses. <laughs> or the bloody thigh in the exactly. turkey you know, as you carve it at table. Exactly. <laughs> Happens to the best of us, absolutely. Right, right. So when I worked at Old Stone House, when I did that event, I recreated one of the earliest Thanksgiving menus that I have found, which is from the personal papers of Juliana Smith and was written, it seems to be about 1779. She wrote a letter to her friend and said, we had a great Thanksgiving and here's what we ate. And it's okay, just now a great I'm menu. Where, now, where did you find these papers? Uh, what I wanted to ask you was, how do you go about your, your My research? research. Right. Now, this one has not, I have not found the original document. I originally came across this letter in the American Heritage Cookbook, mm-hmm. um, which is a mid 20 century book so you always gotta you know you gotta take 20th century books with a grain of salt sometimes you're not looking at a primary source you always gotta check it but i have found original sources for a lot of their menus and i found them to be very accurate so um and I've, i've seen this menu again and again since then my research um 
comes a lot of it does come from this really wonderful website called Feeding America, which I know you're familiar with right, as well. Right, Peter um, Berg and Jan Langone, absolutely fabulous job putting putting old historic cookbooks online for research. It's absolutely, wonderful. about 150 years worth of American cookbooks. Right. And what's truly wonderful about that site is that it's searchable, which is incredible as a culinary historian. You know, you find a reference to something, or or you've got too many apples in your refrigerator and you want to use them for something, and you just type in apples, and all of a sudden you have. 50 comparisons over 150 years of what's happening, what people are doing with apples, and what the, the fashion is at the time. How are people cooking them in different eras? So um, that is always a first, a great first place to start. Mm-hmm. That's also where I fact check, because if I find a recipe that someone says is historic, and I don't find a reference to it in Feeding America, then I'm suspicious. Right. Um, and I also have, I'm accumulating a collection of my own cookbooks, both reprints and originals, because sometimes there's nothing like just paging through a book and looking through for inspiration. Right, right. Well, so this these recipes you found from these papers, the personal papers, um, you found those on oh, from the Heritage Cookbook, you said, right? Yes. And what? And they were for a menu, a full menu of Thanksgiving yeah, dinner? Yeah, the full menu that she had in 1779, which I think sounds delicious and is, as a matter of fact. Um, she had a haunch of venison, roast pork, roast turkey, pigeon pasties, roast goose, onions and cream, cauliflower, squash, potatoes, raw celery, mincemeat pie, pumpkin pie, apple pie, Indian pudding, plum pudding, and cider. Sounds just like my Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> That's a lot of food. She must have been feeding quite a crowd. <laughs> I, from what I under, from the context of the rest of the letter, it seems like a couple uh, branches of their family came together at their grandparents' house, actually. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. there's a long tradition of that. But there is this tradition of multiple meats on the Thanksgiving table yes. that has kind of fallen off now. I mean, especially at this time of the year, this is this is slaughtering season. There's a lot of fresh meat that had to be eaten. Um, but I also think our diet was much more meat-based at this time. Time. We were just consuming a lot more meat at every single meal. However, to have one, two, three, four, five different types of meat. And not small, large. You said a haunch of, of venison. I remember the first time that my uh, my son was experimenting with some slow braising of a, of a large leg of lamb, and he wanted to do it with the Thanksgiving turkey. Mm. Kind of tough, you know, so the ovens were busy for a long time. And I thought it, I, and I said, what? Well, that's, you know, we're kind of throwing off the menu a little bit. But then giving it some thought, I realized, well, of course, you you cooked whatever, as you just said, whatever was butchered, whatever was around. You had multiple meats. And in fact, the earliest Thanksgivings did not, there were tur- turkeys were around, but they right. wouldn't have turkey. They would have had most likely venison right. would have been their, you know, their, their meat of, of choice for a celebration. Which like I that. actually think if you would like to add a second meat, which is funny because uh, I just had a conversation with someone who's having their first vegetarian Thanksgiving, mm. so it's entirely the opposite. <laughs> but if you are thinking of adding another meat to your Thanksgiving table, I say venison. I've done it now for two years in a row. The first time I did, did this menu was in my queen's apartment. I invited all my friends over and we had a revolutionary Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, we served venison and it was absolutely delicious. You know, we just did a venison roast um, and I just, you know, prepared it very, very simply and um, did it with a a dressing too, a current dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great, and it was wonderful. it was kind of a, a nice side in a way. Now I have to say though that I am from Ohio originally, and in Ohio everyone's freezer is stuffed full of deer. Um, people are trying to give it away to you. Now of course trying to buy venison in New York City, that's an entirely different story. Just have to drive a little north. That's all. <laughs> that is true. You got to don't get into the city. It's too expensive. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's just you know what, and it's just my background. I'm so used to having something like that around and easily accessible. And when you're living in the middle of Queens, again, there's some things that are so easy to find and some things that aren't. That's right. Well, now you are not 
um, a trained chef. You're not. You no. did not go to culinary school. So this is all self-taught. Correct? Exactly, and that's exactly why I was kind of dubbed and then accepted the name of a historic astronomist mm-hmm. um, because I'm not a trained chef. Neither did I go to school for culinary history. Um, I just for many years, whenever I read recipes, I didn't just want to read them. I wanted to make them. So m- the knowledge that I have amassed has come from doing, and I think that my my skill in it is taking it and translating translating it to a larger public. Food makes people excited. And New York City has a wonderful food culture. People are interested in eating and trying new things. And so in my mind, it's not just about the geography of where food is coming from. It's about the time the food is coming from and going to the past and pulling that for inspiration as well as looking around the nation. So it's a lot of things that are already happening in New York in a contemporary food scene um, that I think what my work is kind of adding into. Yeah. Well, it's, I, and I think the fact that you are not, um, you don't have that culinary training in the background makes it all the more authentic because these recipes, um, as they were written by, were usually passed down, you know, right. word of mouth or one mother, daughter, family, mother, daughter, family member um, on. And they, I mean, they learned by mm-hmm. doing. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, of course, I've looked at some of the great men of history, too, you know, Krem and, um, you know, looking at Delmonico's mm-hmm. early recipes and looking at the, the men that are doing this professionally. I'm also interested in those. I think one of the advantages, too, is that I don't have a prejudice. I don't look at a recipe. I look at it fresh and I say, I don't have anything to tell me we, you don't do that that way. You can't do that this way. And sometimes trying those very unexpected recipes is when you find a revelation. Yeah. Right. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about your actual execution of some of these recipes i want to hear about some of that so stay tuned we'll be right back We're back on A Taste of the Past, our little journey through culinary history with today's guest, Sarah Lohman. And uh, Sarah and I were talking during the break, but she said that 
she didn't go to school for culinary history and I was telling her, oof, you know, until recently there was no school for culinary history. There, there were no faculties of study. I mean, we yeah. really had to, all those of us who had a passion for it, that was the main thing. We had to have a passion. Right. And it was research on our own and cobbling together and whatever I'm, sources we could find. I'm always interested in, in full disclosure. You know, I want to <laughs> say, I want to be very honest about my right. background too, but at the same time, I think that a lot comes, um, a lot of the learning comes from doing, from mm, reading, right. from amassing knowledge, and the more you do it, the more of an expert you become. And I just like bringing it to a larger audience, too. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating thing. Well, and today, and people are fortunate today, There's the, you, know, you can study culinary history and food history at um, Boston University and, and NYU School of Food Studies. And, and I'm sure across America, there are you know other other means of study yeah. as well. But, um, but we're glad that that happened. But it's, <laughs> still, it happens anyway. Well, now, you... Um, I want to mention before I forget that Sarah has a very interesting blog, and it's called Four Pounds Flour. Correct. Where does this come from? <laughs> well, I uh, knew that actually about two years ago, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary for the blog, that I wanted to start writing about this. I'd already thrown a series of parties with my friends, and um, the Civil War cocktail party, the Revolutionary Thanksgiving, and I just did it because I was interested in it, but then when I did it, all my friends got interested in it, and they'd keep talking about it and talk to each other about it, and it created this place of dialogue, and I realized that there might be a little something more to this. So I decided I, I'd never written a blog before, and I decided I should write and see what the reaction I got. So I was looking for a name, and I was just flipping through my books, and actually I was flipping through one of my favorite um, historic cookbooks, which is American Cookery uh, by Amelia Simmons, mm-hmm. one of the first books, well, the, the first, first. <laughs> the first book published in America by an American right. um, of American recipes. And in one of her cake recipes, she calls for four pounds of flour. And I thought, four pounds flour? That is a huge cake. <laughs> so, I, and I just liked the way that sounds those like words it was an sound. election cake, maybe perhaps, or at least yeah. a multi-layer cake. Certainly something. But all I could think was that is a lot of flour. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just where it came from. I just I really liked the way the words sound sounded together. And recipes of that quantity are often so historic. All you know, right. we don't make cakes that singularly huge very <laughs> no, often anymore. No, we don't. Um, and uh, cakes and cakes and pies were in abundance. Yeah. Yes. Well, now you say that you um, you do have some Thanksgiving recipes that you have worked on and that you've recreated. I want to hear about some of those. Sure. Well, um, one of the things that I like doing is I like taking a recipe and tracing it through time and taking something iconic like an apple pie or a pumpkin pie and seeing the variations over the past 200 years. So um, on my blog, you can actually find a post that I did called 200 Years of Apple Pie, where I started with a 17th century recipe um, that used a lot of cloves and dates involved. And I moved through until the turn of the century, looking at things like adding rose water. So that over time. So I'm actually thinking about doing that for pumpkin pie, although the differences are a little bit more subtle. Yeah, I was going to say pumpkin pie is one the one thing that really hasn't altered a tremendous amount. Our spices have changed. The way that we like to flavor mm-hmm. it has definitely changed. Um, for example, in that 1796 American cookery, she recommends putting in mace, and mace is definitely an ingredient that has fallen out of vogue today. We don't mace is the outer shell of a nutmeg. For those of you out there who don't know, the nutmeg has an outer shell when it's initially harvested. It looks like brains. Yes, it looks <laughs> a little like brains. It's red. The flavor is a little spicy, but also reminiscent 
sort of nutmeg. I don't know if you could describe it better. It's a strange taste. It, I mean, I think that's very accurate. And and you're right. You know, you don't see it that mm-hmm. often, and it's not that easy to find. You can go to you know spice stores. They still have it in the supermarkets. You can find it, but it's just not called. It's not called for in many recipes. And it's also anymore. something you can find in um, Indian foods as well. Mm-hmm. You can usually find mace too in the spice section. Um, yes, not called for more anymore. But in this book, you know, mace was in popular. Mace was in your baked goods. You put mace and nutmeg in everything. It was very very um, important to those flavors. So her pumpkin pie from 1796 has mace, nutmeg, and ginger. And ginger is also something that comes up a few years later, which is in um, Sarah Josepha Hale's wonderful book about American cooking, which came out in the 1840s. And now, is that the Good Housekeeping? Yes, that book? is yeah. Yeah, the Good Housekeeper. Good I Housekeeper, right? And, and then Good Housekeeping came about after that, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, I, I do love. Sarah Hale, too, because she, in my mind, I picture her like Anna Wintour, but 1840s style. She edited Godey's Ladies book, which was, it was the, the fashion it book. It was the go-to mm-hmm. woman's magazine. Absolutely. Period. Period. Yeah. Absolutely. So she was just, she the had a lot of power. <laughs> you know, there was, I'm sure there were others, but not not go, like hers, uh, yeah, not go, as popular. No, yeah. And she just uses these wonderful turns of phrase when she's doing her recipe write, writing. Um, she says, stew the pumpkin dry, make it like a squash pie, only season rather highly. In the country, where this is the real Yankee pie, in italics, is prepared in perfection, ginger is almost always used with other spices. There, too, part cream instead of milk is mixed with the pumpkin, which gives it a richer flavor. So I just really, she really links pumpkin pie to our idea of what Thanksgiving should be. She doesn't say it outright, but she calls it a real Yankee pie. And for a long time, Thanksgiving was very much associated with New England and the foods there, like oysters would also Mm -hmm. be common on a Thanksgiving table. So it's interesting that she specifically mentions ginger, that this is what they do in the countryside, and that is the way to make a best pumpkin pie. Um, We also see rose water appearing in pumpkin pie occasionally. And then the last recipe I have sitting in front of me is actually from the 1960s. And it is a no-bake pumpkin pie from Betty Crocker. and (laughs) Beware of no-bakes. Yes, yes. And interestingly enough, she also doesn't use cinnamon, which is something that I had always used in my pumpkin pie. She also uses ginger and nutmeg and, of course, canned pumpkin, whipping cream, and vanilla ice cream. Interesting. <laughs> At least it didn't have cream cheese in the filling. That <laughs> pumpkin is true. And but it's interesting. Canned pumpkin. Pam, canned pumpkin. I approve of. It's mm. the only vegetable, really, the only canned vegetable which is is unadulterated. I mean, it's yes. just pure. Pumpkin. pumpkin. And yeah. I have done the pumpkin pies from scratch in my oven from a pumpkin, mm-hmm. which is always a, a it's an interesting thing to do, and I have to say, I do love the smoothness that you get when you when you do a pumpkin that way. But man, that is labor intensive, and, and it all depends. I've done many pumpkin pies mm. from um, baking the pumpkins and steaming the pumpkin. I've right. tried all the different varieties, right? And so much depends on the type of the pumpkin yes. you use. You yes. can get stringy pumpkin as well. You know that makes it not you know not as dry. And, and you know what I do is I actually take the canned pumpkin and I put it in my food processor for a little bit, give it 30 seconds or a minute, and it, it tends to deliver the same quality as the best pumpkin made from scratch. Hmm. So this is the advantages that we have over <laughs> the past. Well, now those recipes were, were rather easy because I know mm. that you've come across some old recipes mm. that must have taken a bit of translating before you can even 
try to execute them. You know, I'm actually sitting here with my recipe workbook, which will be the book. Um, the complaint with historic food is often that you look at these recipes and they're just nonsense. They're just, you know, lists of ingredients. And measurements, they, there was no such thing as measurements, yes. first of all. <laughs> and, you know, it was the recipe was meant to be standardized within itself. It's every, if everything was proportional, it would be fine, but there's no sort of standardized measurement. And before coming on the show, I was flipping through my place where I write down my recipes and my translated recipes, and I realized that they're just lists of ingredients. So <laughs> someone will find this book 200 years from now and be equally frustrated. Um, but that is normally what I do. When I find a recipe that I'm interested in, I usually try to find a modern equivalent so that I can understand something about process. The easiest analogy I can come up with is cookies. You know, there's there's cookies as far back as 1796 in that mm-hmm. first cookbook. Um, when I'm looking for cookies, I'll find a modern recipe, something simple, and then I'll retrovate it, is kind of what I call it, and bring it back to the past. So when I'm cooking, I'll over a hearth, yes, I want things to be accurate, but I don't cook over a hearth very often. My facilities are in a fourth floor tenement in Queens. I have a gas <laughs> stove. So I'm really more interested in capturing the flavors of 100 or 200 or more years ago, but also making that very accessible. So I like going to the modern recipe and then, you know, pulling something. Recently, um, I was looking at the first Christmas cookie recipe, which is in Simmons' book. And it's a sugar cookie that's flavored with coriander. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's I know a, that recipe. It's a cilantro yes. cookie. Have you made it before? Yeah, it's actually for a culinary historian oh. event. Did you like mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah. It's more like a tea, like a cake, a, like a tea biscuit. Ah. Yeah. So I took that idea and I found a modern sugar cookie recipe that was a cinnamon sugar cookie. And I replaced the cinnamon with the cilantro and came up with this modern old cookie, if that's the best way to put it. It was a take on the original Christmas cookie because you don't put coriander in cookies very much today. And I thought that that was that core concept was really fascinating. So I wanted to pull it from those pages and bring it into a modern kitchen and kind of release it back out into the world again. Interesting. I think I can feel some of an interesting book coming here. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm going to be compiling a book of uh, Christmas cookies that will be available later this month as part of a fundraising project to launch a larger project in the spring. Um, I've recently been reading Charles Dickens' American Notes, which was his his tourist trip to America in 1842. Oh, yes. And I um, plan to find Follow his route along the country and be doing events in a in a town near you. So um, towards the end of the month, there is going to be a fundraising effort. And if you would like a copy of this book, we're going to cover about 150 years of cookie recipes with the original sources. Because being a culinary historian, I know how frustrating that can be too as well as my modern interpretation. So if you don't agree what I have written down, you can always go back to the original, reread it oh, yourself. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um, one, another, I just did have another question. Sure. Um, and that was... Um, okay, you got me on the Christmas cookies, and that was <laughs> so exciting. Because we'll have to, I, I've got a whole other show planned now when you, you can come back Wonderful. to do the Christmas cookies. Um, oh, it was about translating old recipes, mm-hmm. and of course, a lot of a lot of times, um, people who say, "Well, gee, I think I'll just go research some old recipes," mm-hmm. and they really can't. They have a hard time getting past the old English. You have to yes. realize a lot of these authentic historic recipes are written in old yes. English and old time English yes. and it, you, it's hard to even read the print half the time right so, exactly and, you have to it, and it takes experience you know mm-hmm. it is it is an intimidating thing um, after now doing this for a couple years I can 
even look, looking beyond the language, too, you have to develop this sense of what they want from you. A lot more often than not, it says add enough milk and then spice to taste. And you're like, Ugh, okay, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what enough milk is. <laughs> After time, you learn what enough milk is. You say, okay, she means a cup or about a cup. Maybe we'll add more. And the interesting part is that working more on these older recipes, I've been veering further away. My mother, let's take baking, is a very technical baker. She measures, she, you know, evens every single cup. Now, I was, you know, I was never very good at that. And now after cooking from a 200-year-old recipe that says add enough flour, I hardly measure anything anymore. It's, <laughs> it it's just really it fit bad. your style perfectly, it, it really, right? It really did. So you do develop a sense of what they want from you. And then beyond that, from now having to write it, to force myself to put it out in the public, that also helped me retranslate it into a readable recipe. Well, I think what's so interesting is a to- too many of our cookbooks have gotten away from... Mm-hmm. Um, head notes mm. and descriptions, mm-hmm. and I, I know that um, there's a there are varying schools of thoughts with different publishing houses and different editors. But I really, I really believe you have to get a feel for your food. Yeah. You really need to know. Okay, mix it around until it looks like this curdled, mm-hmm. you know, eggs or something. Because people don't know. Oh my God, did I make a mistake? Is this right? Is this how it's supposed to be? And, right. you know, as you said, how much milk is too much milk or not enough milk? And so. Other than making a recipe 20 times over, which most of us have to do if we're going to test a recipe and and make sure it's right, you know, to give people a sense... Give them, give them a sense of the food, right? And having a, a mentor who is a real person helps with that, too. And for that, that was my mother. You know, I, I learned how to bake as soon as I could stand. And I was cooking dinner when I was in high school. And she's the one that taught me those original things. And no one tells you those things. You will never know. However, if you don't have someone who's working with you, don't be intimidated. Just try it. And I think there is also this kind of very tense sense of the recipe has to be right. You have to do it exactly. It's not going to come out right. Well, what's right is different for every person. Mm-hmm. You can only cook the dish that you want. And I think that that is also a movement amongst modern chefs as well. That, well, this is how I like it, but this recipe is also good with this, 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 and this. You make it how you want it. You make it how you want to make it. I think that's key. That's very important. Right? Adapt it to what you have on hand, but that understand too. and understand your recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, for old historic recipes, there is that translation mm-hmm. problem again, and that is that they called things by different names. Yes. Like a salad or salad yes. was, was generally a mass of cooked vegetables. Right. And not a salad as we know it today. Which is very much sense. part of the Italian immigration, which right. came much later, turn of the, the to 1900 is what I'm trying to say. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to be the mediator. And again, I'm always very, try to be very transparent with my sources because the people who are reading my blogs are an incredibly wide cross-section of people. I'm, of course, been interacting with culinary historians and for them, I'm going to put that original recipe up there so they can ch- fact-check me and tell me when I'm wrong, things like that. I'm also dealing with home cooks. I'm also dealing with people who are chefs and who are in the food environment in New York City. I'm also into kids that, you know, read steampunk and <laughs> are really into science fiction and Victorian the Victorian era and Civil War reenactors and you know people who just like to eat and try new things. And that brings me a great deal of pleasure, having that such a wide cross-section because I think bringing all those groups of people is an incredible environment. I believe that food is a mediator. I think it was um, Betty Fussell, Betty Fussell? Fussell. Know, Fussell. She's the one that said that you ingest food, uh, you, you put food in your body and out comes a world of ideas. I think that's beautiful and I hope that what I do does that. Well, I thank you very much for your work, and I look forward to seeing more of it. And I think what thank you're doing you. is, is so important. And and 
please keep writing as much as possible about your recipes so that we get a feel and a sense for the food. I think it's Thank wonderful. You. And um, I look forward to reading more on Four Pounds Flour. Thank you. And I urge our listeners to check it out, too. You might learn something new. I, I guarantee you, you'll learn something <laughs> new. So thank you so much for being my guest today. My and pleasure. I would also like to thank our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener, and our sponsor, Acme Smoked Fish. This has been Linda Palaccio on A Taste of the Past. 